The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, spray patterns of broken glass and cigarette ash discovered to be communications from ancient aliens. But apparently all the messages when deciphered read, send toilet paper. Hmm. Scientists confused. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. I want to thank David F. Sherrod for doing the podcast the last couple of weeks. He did a great job. This time we have an interview with T.C. McCarthy, author of a fun new science fiction novel called Tiger Bright. This is set in the same universe as his debut novel, Tiger Burning, but a generation later. There are very implacable aliens, dire circumstances, and a human heroine who just might save the Earth from destruction. T.C. will tell us all about that soon. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, you have one week to get in on the February Shot of Love ebook sale. Discounts on straight out of the Weird West ebooks. All of Bain's weird Western theme ebook anthologies edited by Rootin' Tootin' David Boop are on sale. Two dollars off of the Bain ebook for Straight Out of Dodge City, featuring stories by Mercedes Lackey, Harry Turtle, the John Mayberry, and more. Plus one dollar off Straight Out of Deadwood with stories by Charlene Harris, Mike Resnick, DJ Butler, Stephen Graham Jones, and others. And Straight out of Tombstone with stories by Jim Butcher, Larry Correa, and Alan Dean Foster and others. Ebook discounts apply at all the Bain ebook distribution clients, including Amazon. Sale ends February 28th, 2021 at midnight. Yeehaw! Hey, on the front page at Bain.com is a short story called Misfits by A.C. Haskins. This story is set in the world of Haskins' upcoming novel, blood and whispers things that go bump in philadelphia four creatures straight out of a mythology textbook a dwarf a giant a patsola and a merman they are outcasts from the magical community making a living selling street drugs and preying on weak and disadvantaged humans the local sorcerer of the arcanum sworn to protect humanity from the things that go bump at the night well he's a washed out drunk or so they believed but a sorcerer of the first rank, even when thought to be a has-been, is still no trifling matter. Misfits by A.C. Haskins is available for your reading pleasure at Bain.com, and it'll be available long-term in Free Stories 2021, the free ebook download at Bain eBooks. Want to welcome T.C. McCarthy to the podcast. Hey, T.C. Hey, Tony. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, T.C. McCarthy is an award-winning and critically acclaimed author whose short fiction has appeared in Per Contra, the International Journal of the Arts, Literature and Ideas, Story Quarterly, and Nature. His debut science fiction trilogy includes the novels Germline, 
Exogene and Chimera. In addition to being an author, TC is a PhD scientist, a Fulbright fellow and a Howard Hughes biomedical research scholar who served as a weapons expert in the CIA during Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He has neither been fired on nor fired a shot in anger, but is a recognized expert in future warfare who has been invited multiple times by Yusakam. Uh, how do you say that? <laughs> U.S. Sakam. Um, so calm. <laughs> so calm. Okay. Clearly, I was not in the army, in the military. So, yeah. right. oh, you you got to keep that in too. Don't cut it. No, no I'm not going to cut it. Don't worry. <laughs> no, we have so many military uh, listeners; they're just going to laugh their asses off at me. All right, yeah. <laughs> speak on the. I know that anyway. I don't know why though. All right, yeah. <laughs> speak on the topic of future warfare. He uh, Ferbani is the author of Tiger Burning, and and now at booksellers everywhere is another book set in the same world but farther along in the timeline this one is called tiger bright and you can't see it tc but i'm holding it up so everyone can see it um the three dimensional I, I bet it's extremely beautiful it's entirely beautiful yeah so yeah it's a really pretty book um so humanity is in tiger bright um humanity is facing a pretty implacable alien menace the salmon um and we uh, tell us where we are, um, where we are in the looming conflict, how we got there, how this is related to the previous novel. And, um, and right, we start right. out with Kim. So maybe, I mean, when, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. So the, it basically, um, it starts off where the last book, not exactly where the last book left off. There's a bit of a gap. The last book, uh, Tiger Burning, you, you had a main character, Mong, and his um, who, uh, a woman who was actually Mong is, is Myanmarese or Burmese, kind of relevant today given the, the events going on in Myanmar right right now. Um, but uh, he right. marries a um, a Vietnam Vietnamese woman, and uh, you know they fall in love, they get married, and and they have they have a child. But Mong actually had a child from a previous marriage. And uh, we learn in book one, Tiger Burning, that from a from a, a Buddhist monk, that uh, that um, Mong's next child and his previous child are going to go to war against each other. And so it's not it's not really uh, uh, kind of underscored in book one. It's kind of in there in one, maybe two places. I can't remember. But um, book two is dedicated to those offspring who essentially go to war against each other. So book two picks up where the, the younger of the two, the daughter, son, is now of age to, uh, to, to join the military. And her brother, Win is older than her and has gone down a uh, somewhat dark path. Or, and, and been in part been forced down it. Um, so, yeah there have been some uh, pretty nasty things going on on earth, particularly in China. And so what, what uh, was the military situation and the, the fighting and the conflict? Um, and where right. are so we? I, I forgot, I forgot to the second part of the question you asked earlier was, you know, I think to, to kind of go into the background in terms of what's happened on earth and, and uh, who are the salmon and all that kind of stuff. So, 
Earth is essentially um, at a state of just being exhausted, uh, both you know emotionally, physically, and in terms of resources, because of uh, essentially endless war. And it's in this backdrop that an alien race comes and visits Earth. Uh, they're drawn there by our first attempts at interstellar communication, and they arrive to find us, the allies, so U.S. forces and our allies, fighting a kind of semi-human army uh, that, um, that, that the Chinese have fielded. And so they've gone full-on transhuman. They, they've, they've got machine bodies with husks of, uh, of, of a human brain and maybe some basic support mechanisms, the heart, the lungs, et cetera, inside the machine. And, um, and so they are, they're very much no longer uh, kind, of, kind of human in, in, in any way. And so um, the, the Salmon, however, when they arrive, their entire religion is based on warfare. And so it is, you know, they don't have, the Salmon don't have anybody in the supply corps or anything like that. They essentially, they farm out those kind of dishonorable uh, jobs to their subjugated and uh, um, captive races. And so when they arrive on Earth, they start putting uh, humans into that role, into the supply corps, etc. And one of the things that we start to learn at the end of book one um, and, uh, and beyond is that another part of the Selman religion is that it is completely, completely a no-no for any race to um, adulterate their kind of uh, natural state by uploading consciousness into machines, by doing what the Chinese do, merging with machines, etc. So that's kind of a theme in book one, and it continues into book two. And so um, the Selman or immediately want the Chinese annihilated more so probably than the allies do. And, um, and so book two, the Chinese are still around and they're, they're far less of a pro of a um, antagonist in book two than they were in book one. But I got to be honest, Tony, I always include the Chinese in my science fiction as antagonists, because if you look at their government, I can't stand chai comms. I hate everything about communism and so I try and portray the Chinese government as badly as I can, no matter what that means for me in terms of Hollywood movie deals, which is to say, I'll never get one. <laughs> well, not at the current state of things with the way things are getting funded from, uh, from, from there. That's but true. They, exactly I, right. I mean, but it's certainly, certainly understandable considering the, uh, the genocide that's going on and where is it? Xing, Xing province out in the, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, their, their, their government is their government is completely evil. And I'll tell you a story, a personal story. My dad in the 50s um, joined up in the Marine Corps because, um, you know, he wanted to go kill Chinese communists. I didn't understand that that uh, motivation until fairly recently. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just we're learning a lot about about the Chinese government. Got to help the Chinese people. Uh, they, they don't have access to all the information they need to make their own decisions, et cetera. But you've got to you've got to hope that if they ever did understand fully what what their government was up to, that um, you know maybe maybe some basic changes would occur there. I don't know. Well, yeah. Whenever you go to in Tiananmen Square, you get run over by tanks. I guess so. There's right, right there's problem of, of peaceful protest. Um, <laughs> you can get away with it here, but you can't get away with it there as easily. 
Well, uh, you right. can get away with it yeah. here if you're one side. <laughs> That's true. But I won't true. go too far down that <laughs> <laughs> it, it, At least there's a, yeah, well, we'll see. All right, never mind. <laughs> see how things develop. Yeah. So, all right, there have been some, there are two storylines going on in the book. Um, and we follow in Tiger Bright. It's not exactly a good guy and a bad guy. It's it's like you said, these siblings. Um, when is he's not a bad guy and he's just a tool of various forces and he becomes a sort of 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 means to an end, even for himself. He feels himself as a as not a a personality so much as a force. Um he's tell he's physically deformed. Uh tell us how his personality and his physical appearance um tell us about who made him and uh where did he come from etc right so in book one the the last time you see win is when his father mong leaves him on earth so that mong can escape the um, forces trying to track him down and so win is essentially abandoned as an orphan early on and has no father figure for for um the remainder of his life until we pick up in um, in book two. So he had a hard time as a child, and um, without that guidance, without that kind of um, uh, role model, he he's somewhat subjected to to the uh, the evils of of the government, of our government, the U.S. government, in the form of a a, a kind of a mad scientist character, Zelnikov, who has a has a plan for win. And uh, includes him in an um, in the early stages of an an experimental and developmental program to try and um, and have a second attempt at a means to to communicate in in um, interstellar over interstellar different distances. And so, uh, as a part of the Soman kind of decision to allow us to live for a hundred years, and uh, with the promise of war at the end of that hundred years, they provided us with. Their, um, all of their texts related to their technology and their religious texts. And so um, Zelnikov, the scientist, essentially tries to recreate and win what the Soman use to do all of their battle planning and interstellar communications. The Soman, in addition to their warriors, have a priest caste. And uh, the priests in the Soman um, uh, race are kind of born through a, uh, a series of treatments uh, with, a, with a particular kind of drug that's plant-derived. And so Earth scientists mimic this, this approach, and they decide to, to try it out and um, uh, almost perfect it, but not quite, in the form of wind. And so wind goes through a very similar process to what the Soman experience, those who were chosen for the priest cast, where uh, essentially as his mind grows, both, both in terms of ability and in terms of mass, uh, his body undergoes withering changes that uh, essentially make him immobile and a paraplegic so that he has to move around with the help of a, a kind of a mechanized suit. So it's, there's a bit of, an, bit of irony there where he also is like the Chinese. Um, and so uh, is, 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 is kind of disgusting in the eyes of the Soman. Um, but there's a number of different reasons why later on you you learn that the Soman are disgusted by by win. Uh, but like you said, it's 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 almost like in some case in some sense it's not 100% Win's fault who he turns out to be. He's had some really really evil teachers who want him to be the way he is for their own 
kind of twisted purposes. And what they're trying to, the thing he can do is sort of access a, um, a, a multiverse of, of possibilities and, and grasp what's going on. And, and also there's some sort of, it's not psychokinesis in that there is a, a quantum explanation, right? Um, that he can talk yeah. to, he, he can communicate. With this right. Up. So I, I really, I really look. It's this is going to be hand wavy. It's not science, but when you look at, um, I, I really am interested in things like the old research that was done at done by Ryan at Duke University. Um, I think that, uh, um, oh my gosh, who wrote the Forever War? Joe Haldeman. Yeah. You know, references that in the Forever War. Um, I've met Joe McGonagall. In fact, the original draft of these books was called the McMonagall Effect where you had um, uh, this program in, uh, I, I think it started in the 70s. Um, it was run initially by DOD and then CIA picked it up and, and ran its own version of it uh, called remote viewing, where they would put somebody in a room and the remote viewer would have a handler and the remote viewer would basically read off geocoordinates. And then the, um, the remote viewer would, would uh, begin to go through a process or a procedure that would allow that person to begin to see visions of some remote place on the earth. In other cases, it was off the earth. They, they've remote viewed Mars. They've done other, other places. Um, so, um, you know, there is in, in kind of formulating the approach that I took to, to the character of Wynne and also to some extent, the, um, his sister son and their abilities. I started with what we did with remote viewing. And then I just built on that. And I threw in this concept of quantum entanglement where, you know, a, a subatomic particle can essentially exist in two locations at once and, um, and are in, in a way connected, et cetera. And, and uh, I don't know if I'm the first to come up with this idea. I'm sure I'm not. But the whole concept there is, if, you know, out of a given number of billions of subatomic particles, um, surely there's got to be a subset that uh, is active where, where you are on one ship. And where your colleagues are on another ship, you know, millions of light years away. So, um, you know, that's kind of the basis for for the the, the communication and the viewing aspects of it. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, you know, obviously we can't do that today. So clearly, there's some hand waving going on there. <laughs> yeah. But what is uh, all right? So, what is Fleet? And who is this? You mentioned him. Who is this Dr. Strangelove type, um, Zelnikov? Yeah, um, yeah so Zelnikov his... is, sorry? What are his purposes, yeah. Yeah, so Zelnikov is all about Zelnikov. Uh, his, his, his whole goal is, uh, like any good bureaucrat, is to, uh, you know, send his budget skyrocketing, build his empire through influence and, um, and reach and status, and the, the place where he does this is fleet. Fleet is essentially, you know, think of fleet as the army, air force, navy, et cetera, all rolled into one into, uh, you know, today what we might call space force, right? <laughs> and, um, and it's more than that. It is a, it's a, it's a unified kind of command structure that has unified uh, multiple nations under the fleet flag so that uh, it's not just U.S., spacefaring vessels but it's it's vessels um with people from you know all over all over the globe that are part of um 
the Allied nations. So um, Zhelnikov is essentially a genius, and he's been around for a long time. You see him in book one, uh, but only, only just for a glimpse. And uh, Zhelnikov works with Wynne's father and, in fact, uses him as a human guinea pig and winds up killing Wynne's father as well for his own purposes. And so, um, uh, you know, Zhelnikov is, is, I think, at his core, he does want to beat the Soman. So in that sense, you know, he's admirable. He's just willing to do way too much to get there and crosses way too many lines because in addition to having that admirable goal, he really has no morals. So what is, um, since it's right at the beginning, what is Wen up to when they, um, when he shows up with those uh, in a fleet ship with the, with the, contingent of space marines to retrieve some stuff um this is sort yeah, of yeah. so, right so it's uh it's 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 actually a chapter that um that really fits it fits in somewhere in the middle of the book but i took it from the middle and put it put it at the front because uh a it's it's very kind of action-packed um b it's suspenseful and c it kind of illustrates up front um, you know, who, who, when becomes further down the, down the line after you get past the first, you know, five, six, seven chapters. And so when is, um, at a remote base that's located out of the human zone of habitation. So the Soman have allowed us to expand into the universe, but only so far. And if we, if we exceed those boundaries, that's an act of war. War can, they can attack us at that point. We've broken the treaty. We have forfeited our hundred years. Um, but then there are also kind of uh, loopholes to that as well. So it's not, it's not absolute. But um, Zhelnikov, in order to keep some of his, his kind of um, uh, more um, unauthorized research programs hidden, has established an R&D station outside of the human habitable zone and you, you start the book with Wynn being sent on a mission. They've lost contact with this R&D base. They've got a pretty good idea that the Soman have attacked it. And Shelnikov sends Wynn in to do his dirty work to recover whatever he can of the, of the data of this new advanced weapon system, um, any, any data he can of that, of that weapon system from the base that's just been overrun. And he is, um, he's kind of remorseless and relentless in using his, his uh, underlings in doing so, right? That's one of the- Oh, yeah, yeah. Jel Jelnikov has no problem with, uh, with a high body count. The only reason he might hesitate to, to send Win on something that's, you know, um, that's very dangerous but doesn't have a, a, an equal or greater reward is just because Win is a little more valuable than your average, you know, schmuck. So opposite of when is his, his sister, uh, son, um, what's she been training for? She's right. So son is, um, son is a similar character as Win, but it's in a competing program. So you've got these competing, uh, kind of factions within fleet. One is led by Jelnikov and his allies. And the other is led by a religious sect that, that kind of sprang up after the Soman first arrived on Earth. And uh, it's a Catholic religious sect. And um, 
So San, uh, when she was an infant, was admitted to a, a similar program as Win, except in instead of um, altering the human form to the extent that that they did with Win, it's much more um, geared toward augmenting uh, human the human brain mass in ways that don't really change the body all that much and uh, using advanced drugs to induce uh, the same kind of uh, capabilities and abilities as when until they get to the point where in some cases they can do it without the assistance of drugs. And so, um, so San, when the book starts off, I don't want to give away too much. So I'm trying to think of how to say this without too many spoilers. Uh, I'll just put it this way. Um, San, when the book starts off with San in boot camp, uh, she's not fully aware of what her abilities are or, or um, what the, the true plan is that Fleet has for her. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> but well, eventually she's, been experiencing, she's been experiencing some of the effects uh, that might be termed paranormal. And she, she's not, unlike when, she doesn't know what's going on. Um, right, right, right. She does not know at all. And, um, and so they, the, I love the scene in, um, in the first chapter with San where she's admitted to the back of the barracks where there's a nun who's come in to interview all the, all the cadets. And she's wondering what the hell is a nun doing here? Excuse my language. And, um, and so the nun starts asking these questions that just seem bizarre and off the wall. And the, 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 um, those questions are actually in part derived from questions that uh, Joe McMonagall was asked when they were first interviewing for um, Project Stargate remote viewers. So they, the, the DOD personnel were brought in, they were given an interview, and they were asked questions that any one of us would think, you know, oh, I'm going to lie to this and say, I don't believe in ghosts, or I don't, you know. Um, but Joe McMonagall said, you know what, they want me to tell the truth. So he answered truthfully to all of them. Next thing you know, he's admitted in uh, an early class and into the Stargate remote viewing program. Mm. So um, it turns out that Sana isn't able to join fleet and um, instead has something to do with this pro alien order you were mentioning. Um, who are the pro, the pro aliens and how are they different? What's up with, why did the summon hit them first? Um, Right. So, so that is a, there's a lot of inner interconnectivity between um, Catholicism, Catholic prophecy, and what the Soman believe. And so when the Soman first come to earth, they're not just coming here to get kind of a, a, a bunch of slaves to work on their supply lines, et cetera, to help support their war efforts. Uh, the Soman are also actually looking for uh, a race or an, a planet with, with uh, beings that fit some of their own prophecies. And so the Salmon know from their religion that eventually they will encounter a race that defeats them on the battlefield, and they're looking for that race. But in addition to that, they know certain tidbits that, um, that they should be looking for in terms of the faith that, um, that, that this, this other race will have. And so when they get to Earth, the first thing they do is not just go to the to Catholic locations, they go all around the planet uh, looking for, and when they don't find it, destroying, you know, Buddhist centers of worship, um, 
Muslim centers of worship, you know, the whole nine yards. And so eventually they do reach the Catholic kind of centers, and they also destroy those, but it's, it's not, they're not really destroying the Catholic centers. When they, when they encounter the Catholic centers, they realize and recognize in a number of the Catholic prophecies a match that, that the Catholic faith and things like the, the, the third secret at Fatima or Our Lady of Fatima, those things match to a T the prophecies that the Soman have. And so they protect these, these, the remainder because when they come to earth, the Catholic faith is all but gone. So they, they protect what's left of it, and they, um, they move some of it off planet um, into the solar system and set up a secret kind of um, uh, capability for this, this, this new line of Catholics called the Pro-Aliens, and uh, I would call it a Catholic order. And so um, you've got these Catholics in space who, um, who also, because of the way the Soman have recognized them and because the way that the Soman helped get them set up, become a dominant or, or very powerful force within fleet uh, as, as fleet begins to expand throughout the solar system and then beyond in preparation for this coming war in 100 years. Uh, let's talk about the Soman, uh, the Salmon. What, what, what do they physically look like? What are they? Why are they? What's the deal with them? So <laughs> I don't know why they are. I just invented them for these books. Come on, tell me. <laughs> hmm. so, but um, so they are one of many races that um, that we come to find exist throughout the universe, and um, they are not the earliest race either, as we come to find out in Tiger Bright. And uh, but they um, they exist kind of on the far uh, the 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 side of the galaxy farthest from Earth, or quite a bit of distance anyway from Earth. And they are a race of, um, like I said, warriors, but they are nitrogen breathers. They're, um, they're very big. They are huge uh, creatures, probably twice as tall as a man, one and a half times as tall as a man. Um, uh, needle-like teeth, lots of needle-like teeth. And uh, think of a, a cross between predator and uh, an alien and, I don't know, um, uh, a spider maybe, because uh, they're all black and uh, with, with mottled skin. And, um, and so they're, they're essentially all about killing and the, the, the closer they can get to you while they're killing, and if they can use their hands too, um, the better. You know, they're, they're just all about honor, uh, taking risks. It, you know, it, if, if they can die in battle, that's the best way to die. Um, but also they're, they're all about victory. And so those are the warriors. That's predominant. That's the, the kind of largest number of uh, individuals in Soman society um, are the warriors. Then you've got a much smaller number of, of the priest caste. And those are selected at an early age. They show signs of, of, uh, of being like, you know, like San or Win, having some sort of proclivity toward exhibiting some psychic ability or something like that. They're selected, they're weaned out, and they're put on this drug to turn them into a um, essentially somebody whose job is to uh, to essentially commune with the other priests, almost into a hive mind, where they um, where where they come up with their strategies for invasion of other worlds, where they navigate, uh, where they uh, can communicate across interstellar dif- distances, and where they can see to some extent 
the future or what's going on in the minds of, of people like us. And so um, that's it. It's, it's almost a binary society in that sense. And uh, they are um, self-reproducing. I can't remember what the word is. I put it in the book and now I can't remember it because I'm so tired, but um, they don't, they don't procreate through sex. They, they essentially um, self-procreate and they, they do it in a very insect-like manner. They conquer a world then they go into kind of a, not a dormancy, but they go into a, you know, procreation mode. And um, once they've, once they've kind of uh, duplicated to the extent where they have a full and vibrant army again, then they move on to the next target. Mm. That not that word parthogenesis? I can't remember exactly, but I think it might be. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's the word. So, um, and, and they have, uh, they're sort of their religion is war and they're interesting in a way because they have this weird uh honor about them that they're implacable and they'll kill the hell out of you but um there's certain things that they will adhere to if they say they'll do it and they're looking for somebody to beat them and yet they still fight like um you know like they wanted to completely destroy the their enemies yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, it's in it. This is one of the subplots of Tiger Bright is the question of faith. What is faith? And when you look at the Soman and their faith, um, they're lucky. The, the, you know, I, think, I can't remember how I phrased it in the book, but their priests uh, can remember everything that the, the earliest priests in their history, in their ancestry, saw. And so, whatever religious experiences early Soman priests had, get passed down from one generation to the next as real as if you know you or i experienced it the day before essentially and so for them faith you know faith is seeing believing is seeing <laughs> rather than seeing is believing right and um uh and maybe maybe it goes both ways in the case of so um so um so they've got that going for them when it comes when it comes to their faith and so for a soman warrior um, who, who interacts with the priests, there's just no doubt in their mind that in order for the prophecies to come true, that they really want to come true, they have to fight as hard and as all out as they can. You know, I'm sure that they'd love, maybe some of them would love to give the humans a break or another race just, just so that they can be beaten. But deep down, they know that's not going to fulfill the prophecy. They've got to be as hard charging as they can and give no quarter. Yeah, the very definition of tough love, where you just kill. <laughs> you, you yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, I don't want that tough love <laughs> from aliens. But <laughs> so, uh, what is what? What are what weapons are we seeing here? What is, what's the technological aspect of the? So war? yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. The um, you've got ship-based technology which um, I, I am a fan of the missile. I think that's going to be common um, with, you know, I, no matter where we are in technology development until we get to a point where basically we're, we're floating clouds of energy ourselves. I think missiles are going to play an important role, especially in ship-to-ship combat. Uh, you've, got the, you've got the aspects of sending hot molten jets of steel through hulls of your, your enemy's vessels. You can carry nuclear payloads on missiles. You can do all sorts of stuff with missiles. Of course, there's going to be an energy, um, uh, an energy weapon as well, whether that's a particle beam or a laser or whatever. 
those weapons can play a role. But the genius of the Soman weaponry is that it uses essentially um, uh, either particle accelerators or lasers or both to punch a hole um, into an alternate uh, universe at a location where a star exists. And so it siphons Soman, Soman plasma weapons, siphon the plasma off, off of stars and um, through magnetic, um, uh, magnetic guides, shoot that plasma at vessels. And so you're, you're in space, you're in a vacuum, and you've got plasma jets coming off of stars that are going to travel a very long distance. Those are going to cut through anything. And so um, the beautiful thing about that, too, is you don't have to worry about ammunition. And you don't have to worry about if somebody hits your magazine, you don't have a magazine. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that's going to blow up unless you're talking about missile magazines, which, which do also exist or coexist with those plasma weapons. So we, in this book, in Tiger, Tiger Bright, uh, we, the humans, haven't quite developed or perfected that Soman technology, but we certainly are um, uh, making strides along, along the way, as, as you see in the opening of the book. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of cool. Uh, and and there, uh, what about space travel? How is that accomplished? So it is, um, that is, that's where you get on this other race that existed before the Soman. And um, so not much is known about them, but they've seeded the universe with, uh, with wormholes. And um, the, the, the way that space travel is accomplished across, across interstellar dis distances is that these wormholes exist and we map them out um, slowly but surely. <clears throat> and um, the Soman are obviously much further along than we are at this. But until you get to a wormhole, it's essentially, um, you know, chemical or ion engines, uh, it, you know, using lots of fuel, et cetera. Uh, and I think also fusion engines, if I'm not mistaken, that's a primary, um, a primary uh, propulsion means as well. So tell us more about Son. Um, we don't want to reveal too much, but, the, but she is our, her our heroine and the, the kind of task that she generally faces in in the story what what is she doing well son is is one of these characters who's uh i think she's i don't want to say she's pure of heart but she's pretty darn close she son is a good kid uh but she's she's full of self-doubt she's thrust into to situations that um she's not ready for and or way too young for but um you know war is is something that kind of forces that stuff on, on uh, a lot of young people way before they're ready. And so that's the kind of thing that San faces throughout the book is just having to face these horrific circumstances, including the prospect of, of um, having to kill her own family. Uh, and, um, and it's not just, you know, it's not just success in the military or anything that's riding on this. It's literally the fate of humanity. And so I think she does an admirable job of, of just continuing to go forward in circumstances where she might not know what she's doing, um, but just having a level of faith to know that, um, that she's got to do certain things, uh, whether or not she can predict the outcome. Yeah, she's really cool. So uh, what are you working on at the moment? 
So right now I'm working on a bit of a, a, a left turn for me. I'm taking a break for now from the, the Tiger Burning, Tiger Bright books. And I'm, uh, I'm doing a, um, uh, what is essentially a post-apocalyptic fantasy. And um, I'm really enjoying writing it. I'm also working on a number of short stories, but I'll get back to that. Um, but this, this post-apocalyptic fantasy is, is very much like, um, I don't know if you remember that, that role-playing game, Gamma World, right? It's, it's kind of like that setting, but, but with a, a major fantasy element. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm also working on another book, um, which is actually more literary mainstream and um that's that's a bit of a, a a labor of love it's you know people aren't reading literary um literary novels these days so but I, I enjoy writing literary fiction occasionally and so i always come back to this one book that i'm trying to finish and uh, i'll continue to come back until it's finished and then i'm writing three short stories for some anthologies so i've got let's see stephen lawson i believe is writing in an, or putting together an anthology for bain um i know your your own chris I can, I can never pronounce his name. Rocchio? It's Rocchio. It just spelled Rocchio, yeah. Yeah. So the uh the first chapter in this um in this fantasy post-apocalyptic fantasy uh is going to be a short story in his book or in his uh, anthology. And then um I've promised uh, Sean Hazlett uh, a, a short story for another Bane anthology that he's doing. Mm-hmm. So uh I'm kind of um kind of doing everything right now a couple of novels and and a few short stories very cool um well uh good luck with that the book out right now is tiger bright by tc mccarthy uh tc thanks so much for uh talking with us about tiger bright hey thank you tony it was a pleasure Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Planetary Director's Office. City of Columbia, Beowulf. My God, Gabe. Chang Benton Ramirez's face was bloodless. My God, my God, what the hell just happened? I don't know. Cadell Markham's dark complexion showed his shock less obviously, but his eyes were stunned-looking. Nobody does, or not yet at least. But the missiles, that's the one thing we know it wasn't, Cadell Markham said grimly. But if it wasn't? Our best guess up here, and it's what Corey's working on too, I think, is that it had to be internal. The defense director's voice was crushed gravel. 
Somebody got a bomb aboard. One powerful enough to take out a seven billion ton habitat. That's the only way it could have happened. But who? It was the alignment, sir, Patricia Given said, standing beside Cadell Markham, with Sir Thomas Caparelli and Judah Yanikov. Michael Mayhew stood on the defense director's other side, his face like iron. We can't prove it, yet, Givens continued, reaching up to press one hand to strong mind's flattened ears. It's the only answer, though. Not the Sollies? No, Mr. Chairman. Givens shook her head sharply. That's the one thing I'm absolutely sure of. Benton Ramirez raised his eyebrows, and the second space lord nodded to the woman standing at her elbow. Commander Lasseline, my chief of staff, sir, she said. She's been coordinating with your local intelligence people since we got here for the conference. She turned to look at the commander. You want to take this, Terry? Yes, ma'am. Commander Lasseline's face was tight with tension, but her eyes were clear and focused, Benton Ramirez thought. Sir, she said, speaking directly to him. If the Sollies had wanted to do this, and if they could have gotten a bomb aboard, they'd never have committed that many ships to an open attack and taken such massive losses. They wouldn't have needed to. For that matter, they would have wanted their navy as far away as possible when the bomb went off. My God, sir, this is an even worse Eridani violation than the Iwata strike. Total casualties are already high, even with the surviving block ships already in position to intercept wreckage before it deorbits and kills anybody dirtside. But in terms of a cold-blooded, deliberate mass casualty strike on a non-military target, this is probably the worst violation since the edict was promulgated. This single bombs killed more people than the worst-case estimate for all the Mesa atrocity explosions combined. There is no way, no way in hell, the Sollies would have done something like this while they're so busy beating us over the head about Mesa. Benton Ramirez nodded slowly. Her analysis made sense, although the reason for such an attack made none. Unless... You think they could have intended for this explosion to be simultaneous with the Sali strike on Ivaldi? Givens glanced at her military colleagues, then back out of the display at him. I think that's possible, sir. Probable, even. I don't know why they'd have done it at all, but it certainly looks like it was intended to coincide with the attack. I don't know whether that's because they were looking for some kind of deniability or because they wanted to saddle the Sollies with responsibility for some reason. But I can't help thinking there was something else behind it as well. But what? Benton Ramirez demanded. He wasn't asking Givens that, he was asking the universe. And he knew she realized that, but she answered him anyway. I don't know, sir. I only know we aren't going to like the reason when we find out what it was. Access Boom, Industrial Annex Number 6, Beowulf Alpha, Beowulf System. Of course it was Mesa, Jacques Benton Ramirez Ichu said harshly. I don't know why the bastards did it, but it was damned well them. Hamish Alexander Harrington nodded in agreement, his blue eyes colder than ice. The two of them were staying out of the conversation between Chong Benton Ramirez and the senior officers in the Jennifer O'Toole room. It was hard, but they were still stuck on the access boom, with only the small screen Jacques had managed to reconfigure as a window into what was happening. Neither could have contributed much, 
so they had no intention of getting in the way of people who did have something useful to say. Behind them, Tobias Stimson was methodically smashing the locks off one locker after another. Whitehaven had no idea what his armsman was up to, but right this minute, he didn't care. Like Benton Ramirez Ichu, he was totally focused on the display screen. Of course it was Mesa, he agreed now, cradling Samantha in his arms as the cat quivered to the emotions ripping through the two humans. I think Chong's question about their intending to synchronize it with the Soli attack probably has a lot going for it. But Pat's right that that's only a part of it. He bared his teeth briefly. I'm sure it wouldn't break their hearts for us to blame the Sollies. That may even be a big part of why they did it. But I'll guarantee we'll find out that's not what it was really about when we finally dig down to the bottom of it. Not really. I can smell it. Agreed. But what the hell was it about then? Aside from pure viciousness, I mean. Benton Ramirez Chu's voice was ineffably bitter as he waved one hand at the tiny display and the expanding sphere of wreckage where Beowulf Gamma once had been. It was hard to believe, but the time chop on the display said it had been barely four minutes since the explosion. There sure as hell weren't any critical targets on Gamma, just ten million human beings. I know, Jacques. Whitehaven rested one hand on his wife's uncle's shoulder and squeezed. I know. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a stealthy black helicopter filled with Valentine shock troops and claymores, which can be the same thing at times. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to T.C. McCarthy, author of Tiger Bright. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Bye.